were sort of trying to get people excited about how to produce the future of mobility or understand a future of mobility that would not be like hell. An e-bike is not just a transportation tool, it's, it's a life-changing and city-changing tool and should be embraced by all people who are serious about making cities more sustainable and livable places. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Earthlings podcast. My name is Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, I'm an analyst, and I'm a wonk. So today, <laughs> we're going to talk about one of the biggest changes going on in cities around the globe. New ways to get around that are smaller than a car and that sort of blur the lines between what is motorized transport and what is non-motorized transport. And with me today, as always, is my co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. Yes, that voice in the background who couldn't help but laugh when Christian called himself a wonk. <laughs> It's funny because it's true. <laughs> My name's Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I help companies um, in the climate tech space and the energy transition with my PR firm, Technica Communications, and all people in this industry with their careers with women in clean tech and sustainability. And what excites me about our topic today is this term micromobility. You may have heard it, you may have not, but people in the biz, this is how they refer to it. But what we're really talking about is these electronic forms of personal transit. And we're only just getting started on what these forms are going to be in the future. Right now, we've got e-scooters and e-bikes and maybe some hover bikes and those random big single wheel things that people stand on and roll down the street. And these are just, you know, some of the, I think, early versions of what micromobility as a technology tool is going to bring us in the future. And of course, they're zero emission and more efficient. Yeah, indeed, they do. And they have all these benefits, but let's first talk about those emissions. So to have a shot at keeping global average temperature rise below 1.5 C, we have to cut emissions basically in half globally across the whole economy. <laughs> no, no, nothing difficult or anything, right? Yeah, in eight years. So in places like the United States, transportation is the biggest single source of emissions. And listen, it's not small in other parts of the globe either. Now, many people say, we'll just do EVs. But because cars stay on the road for an average of more than a decade, it's really hard to replace all the internal combustion engine vehicles with EVs in time. And this is even if the EV industry and demand just massively scale and we switch over to almost exclusively selling EVs this decade. So because of this problem, this stock problem we have, we need other solutions to complement EV adoption. Yeah. And if we're going to get there. Yeah. And come on, let's face it. I mean, getting around a city in a car, like who really wants to do that anyway? I mean, traffic just makes me want to gouge my eyes out and finding a parking spot requires prayers and offerings to St. Otto just to give you something in the, the amount of time that you need to actually get to where you're going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, driving in cities sucks. Yeah, but there's also collateral damage. So again, in the United States, which is among the most, probably the most car dependent of nations, uh, whether you're inside or outside of a car, cars the leading cause of death of children and youth up to 24. And it, I mean, they're just, they're competing every year with guns and it's, it's just scary. sucks. Yeah. And on an individual basis, you know, they're, they're not cheap either. They're a big, they end up being a big outlay of money every month. Cars 
And you barely yeah. use them. They sit around most of the time. Yeah. So I think this is why I think you also see a lot of the safety issue, like with pedestrians and such and cars and the insanity that, that they create. Uh, this is why I think you see more cities sort of shutting down certain major thoroughfares to, to cars, especially at certain times of the day. I'm looking at you, Market Street, San Francisco. <laughs> so, yes, with all these micromobility options out there, including, like Lewis Ann mentioned, the ones that haven't been discovered yet and the hoverboard that my son loves to ride around on, I think that the one we're really looking at in this episode more than any is e-bikes because they really open up this space and allow people to do things that they couldn't do before. And this includes people we don't often think of when we think of e-bikes because, well, frankly, they're often the people we tend to overlook in other areas as well. However, we talk to somebody whose work involves getting e-bikes into the hands of people who might not otherwise be able to afford them, including the people who just brought you your dinner. My name is Melinda Hansen. Uh, I run a consulting firm called Electric Avenue. And I'm the co-founder of the Equitable Commute Project. So the Equitable Commute Project was started um, peak pandemic in July of 2020. It launched. Um, And it was the realization that uh, while a lot of white-collar workers were working at home safely, um, a lot of folks who were frontline workers were still needing to commute into their workplaces. And a lot of people were increasingly concerned about riding on public transportation and people who could afford it were increasingly turning to cars, both things which weren't really working out from a transportation perspective. So uh, at the same time, the bike boom was happening. We were seeing so many more people choosing to take two-wheeled modes of transportation to get around. And it occurred to us that more people would likely choose electric bikes in particular if it was more broadly known about and if they could also uh, afford them because electric bikes are very appealing to people in a way that bikes may not be, but they can be pretty expensive with a sort of like minimum price for a high quality bike being about $1,200. So we launched the Equitable Commute Project to focus on subsidizing 5,000 e-bikes for lower income frontline workers in the city. At the same time, we're launching and have already launched actually a accessible financing mechanism to make sure that people, regardless of their credit history, can access uh, low interest, low dollar loans to close the gap between the subsidy and the purchase price. So let's talk for a moment here about e-bikes within the larger space of micromobility. We've certainly, there's been a lot of writing about e-bikes and not say scooters or some of the other micromobility options. What specific advantages do e-bikes have over other micromobility options, particularly for lower-income people? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is that you can travel uh, long distances very comfortably. So, you know, sometimes I think that e-bike is a is a bit of a misnomer because a lot of people hear bike and they think physical exercise, physical exertion. But an e-bike is a totally different experience. It, it is a very easy mode that is accessible to people regardless of your fitness level, um, regardless of which hills you need to climb. It's a hill flattener. A lot of people refer to it as that. And it's a fun experience, which is not a word you can use to describe many transportation experiences. So wait, you're telling me that when you get in your car and you drive into traffic, that that's not a joy-inducing experience? <laughs> you know, it turns out. I mean, some of the calmest people I know, you get in a car with them and someone cuts them off and the words that come out of their mouth. Um, yeah, it, so so talk to me about the key, who are the key demographics that can really benefit from micromobility? We keep mentioning low-income people. Why? What's the story here? Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
people of all ages, abilities, ethnicities, jobs can benefit from micromobility. The Equitable Commute Project is focused specifically on subsidizing and outreach to folks in lower income communities, in part because what we're seeing in some of the other incentive programs, if you look at electric car incentives or even appliance incentives that have been done at state and federal levels, uh, or even some sort of emerging e-bike subsidy programs that have been done, you know, there tends to be a limited number of incentives available for each of these programs. And the folks that seem to grab them up most quickly are already in the know. Uh, they tend to be higher income. Um, and also for a lot of folks in the U.S., you know, even just if you get an incentive, even a $500 upfront cost is too much to afford. And it's, it's relatively easy for somebody to access a loan for a car, but it's quite challenging for people to access a low dollar loan of the range of, you know, $500 to $1,000. And so that's really where we saw a gap and what the gap that we're trying to close with the Equitable Commute Project. So talk me through the challenges that lower income people have when making these kinds of capital investments. You know, obviously, these, this is something that, say, for a delivery driver may be able to save them money over time. Uh, or even compared to the purchase of a car, you know, why would this be difficult for lower income people? And why would they, might they be averse to making these kinds of investments? I mean, I think, you know, there's, so for, for working cyclists uh, in New York City specifically, it's estimated that there's between 65,000 and 90,000 working cyclists. So these are people who make a living riding their bikes, doing deliveries and doing uh, most a lot of food deliveries, but also other types of deliveries around the city. A lot of these folks are immigrants, so they may not have any credit background. Um, some of them are undocumented, so they especially don't have any credit access or you know, access to, to capital. And they're working on the margins, so they're not getting paid a minimum wage at this point. Their ability to actually save money is, is very low. Um, because one of the things that, that's happening right now in the industry is that there's basically two categories of e-bikes. There's lower quality e-bikes, which have some concerns around safety and around durability. And then there's higher quality e-bikes that are some amazing machines that are you know, very safe from a battery safety perspective and a lot more comfortable and long lasting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what this means economically. Does for people, for, for immigrants and others who may, this may be a step up from a bike to an e-bike for them, for their work, for those working cyclists, does an e-bike actually allow them to make more money? How does it affect their, is there an economic aspect to this move? Yeah, absolutely. You know, an e-bike allows you to travel much further distances much more quickly and without needing to refuel on calories um, as often. <laughs> uh, so, and in a city like New York, you know, a majority of trips that you could take is going to be faster in an e-bike than it would be in a car. And a lot of these workers are getting paid per delivery. So it makes makes total economic sense that they want to uh, have a mode that allows them to get from one destination to the other and also doesn't make them have to, you know, stop and look for parking in the meantime, which, uh, you know, time is money and it can really chip away at your income if you're trying to park a car. Sure, absolutely. You know, I'm thinking about um, various efforts. It seems like the mayor and the city were in the past cracking down on e-bikes and that there was almost a sort of a criminalization of you know, of e-bikes, certainly they didn't seem like they fell neatly into the category of bicycles or motor vehicles. And what's going on with that? Are there still attempts to criminalize 
e-bike use? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a really great point. So, so delivery workers in the city have been using e-bikes for roughly, I think, the, the past decade. And electric bikes have been a very popular thing in in parts of Asia since the '80s, right? Electric bikes yeah. with with lead acid batteries. So they have been around, but I think the influx of a lot of these delivery apps uh, encouraged their use even more. Um, and so suddenly it, it seemed like over the course of a few years, the number of e-bikes in the city went from probably a few thousand to tens of thousands. And at the time, they did not actually, there wasn't a lot of clarity in the vehicle code. So, right, you know, like the vehicles that are allowed to move around on our streets are regulated typically at the, at the state level by the departments of motor vehicles. They have to be regulated and you have to get a license and you have to pay registration and all these other kinds of things. So when the e-bike came on the scene, it was sort of a, in a gray area. And that was the case across the U.S. Some states or some some cities chose to take that gray area and just allow them. And other cities chose to take that gray area and crack down. And unfortunately, a lot of what we saw was discriminatory crackdowns because a lot of the crackdowns happened on the working cyclists. Um, sort of, you know, nothing new, consistent with a lot of a lot of enforcement policies that we've seen. Um, but luckily, there was a strong effort to organize and push back on the crackdowns and also ensure that the code was cleaned up so that the bikes would be illegal or, or sorry, would be legal. So certainly, I think that the advantages of micromobility for a city like New York, you know, in particular e-bikes, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, it's even those people who choose who are foolish enough to drive in New York, it's miserable. Yeah. There's no place to put, there's no room for the cars in the densest urban area in the country, right? It's, it's just really, <laughs> yeah. it's really hard. I feel yep. for those people like movers who have to, who have to drive through the city, yep. you know, or ambulance drivers. But what about smaller and mid-sized cities? Talk to me about how e-bikes work in those and suburbs and sunbelt cities that don't have the same kind of density or infrastructure that New York has. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I think uh, one thing that's important, you know, for, for me to be taken seriously in the work that I'm doing is certainly not to propose that everybody everywhere sell their cars and only rely on an e-bike. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, an e-bike is not going to work for every trip, right? It works really well for single passenger trips and it works really well for trips under 10 miles. Uh, and if you look at the data, a surprising number of trips in the U.S., fit this criteria. Something like 65% of all trips taken in the U.S. by car are under five-mile trips. They also tend to be single passenger. And so the thing that I'm really, and, and this is across, you know, all sort of suburban and urban areas in the U.S. Now, rural contexts are, are their own unique um, situation and challenge, but um, focusing on where the majority of Americans live, which is in urban and suburban locations, at least a certain percentage of their trips could be taken by e-bike. And doing so could have a real impact from a climate and traffic congestion and road safety perspective, right? The fewer miles that are traveled, the better it is for all of those criteria. So I think really what we're talking about here is, you know, the trips that you can, if, if you have a car and only a car, everything's going to look like a car trip. If instead you have this great, great tool of the e-bike uh, and decide to start taking it, you know, for quick runs to the grocery store or, you know, using one of these long tails to drop your kid off for a play date or at, at preschool or something um, and just start weaving it into your day-to-day -day life. I think, you know, if you, if you follow Twitter, you see 
stories every single day of people whose lives have been changed for the good by, by using e-bikes and suddenly they're barely using their car or moving from a two-car household to a one-car household. Or sometimes their lives get changed for the worse because then they see the car infrastructure everywhere and now they're attending city council meetings. I mean, is, <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important to know about for our listeners to know about how e-bikes are changing people's lives from the perspective of the users? I mean, I think I think maybe one story I would like to tell is uh, with the Equitable Commute Project, you know, though we don't have funding yet, we piloted the effort with 15 people in December of this year. And the demand for these things is so high. Some of the people that made it into the first round just have really amazing stories, including, um, you know, an older gentleman named Mike who uh, hadn't been able to take a bike for a really long time. He had a very long walk that was at the end of his um, his transit journey to his job, and he had a, a he's a veteran and he had a bum knee. Uh, and so an e-bike now allows him to travel the distance and shorten his commute and get where he needs to go. Another person whose story I think is extremely compelling is a woman named Pamela Martinez, who um, is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. Um, she's a, a teacher's assistant living in the Bronx with two kids. And she got one of these long tail e-bikes uh, and she said that it's been life-changing for her. It's allowed her to spend more time with her kids. It allows her to reduce her commute time to save money because previously she had to take up to four Ubers a week to run different journeys. Uh, and now she takes her kids on her e-bike. And she also even does Costco runs on weekends with her e-bike. And so, um, and at the same time through this program, you know, because she's an immigrant, she doesn't really have much of a, a credit history uh, and the program is allowing her to build credit at the same time that it's brought all these other life improvements. So um, I guess one of the things to say is that an e-bike is not just a transportation tool. It's a life-changing and city-changing tool and, and should be embraced by all people who are serious about making cities more sustainable and livable places. Wow, that is such a powerful story that Melissa tells us of how this single change, one item, uh, like an e-bike, can open up this world of possibilities. It's those second and third order effects that you love so much, Christian. <laughs> yes, and this works pretty well in New York, which has embraced alternative mobility and built, what, hundreds of miles of protected bike lanes? Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, but if you're in a city that doesn't have as good of infrastructure there can still be really big safety issues, even on an e-bike. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a chicken and egg thing because, either, you know, you have the micromobility options and people are adopting them and using them in the cities, but then the cities are late to accommodate them and you need like this critical mass of social change to then enact government change because government always lags behind. And then, you know, you're not welcome if you're not in a car or a bus. I mean, how many cities kicked out their e-scooters or, or limited them to only a certain parts of the city just arbitrarily because they just didn't want these scooters all over the place? You know, I'd still rather try, be trying to get around a city that has these shared micromobility options instead of one that doesn't. <coughs> Anaheim. <coughs> Houston. <laughs> and then you have these cities that you wouldn't expect to embrace micromobility that seem like they would be very car-centric, like Salt Lake City, which have you know, totally embrace them. So I know, can't buy alcohol on a Sunday, but you can have a bike share program. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Long Beach also, which is where I lost my e-scooter virginity back in 2019. Thank you very much. That was a shit ton of fun. 
I remember I had, I decided I didn't need the, like the govern, the governor, you know, to keep me below like 20 <laughs> miles an hour or whatever. I'm like, I don't need this. I'll be fine. And then I got on it and I'm like, oh my God, this is too scary. I only want to go 10 miles an hour. Yeah. But you know, we're being very U.S. centric here. Mm-hmm. You know, the way people are getting around in cities, including through micromobility is changing all over the world. Oh, including Columbia, right? Which has been a pioneer for building this transportation system oriented around bikes and transit and other non-automotive solutions. And that's why we tracked down somebody who works on these issues around the world, including in his home country of Colombia. And we wanted to talk to him about how Bogota has become this leader in progressive transportation and basically redefined itself in the process. I'm Carlos Felipe Pardo, and I'm a little bit like a Formula One racer because they have a lot of stickers. I, in this case, I'm here because I'm the senior advisor to the new Urban Mobility Alliance. So, Carlos, to get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about your work? Like, what motivates you to work with the, the Alliance? I, I'm a psychologist and an urbanist, which is a little bit strange for people who work in transportation. But but I have some form of an explanation, which is, first of all, people are crazy when they're driving, which of course makes you need a psychologist. But, but more seriously, in the end, transport policies are all about uh, making decisions. And then sort of psychology helps you in understanding how people will make sense of the world and make decisions in the end. So that is the way that I try to explain. I've I've always been a cyclist. I raced here in Colombia for a long time when I was young. And, and there was actually a champion at a national level of downhill, which gives me some street cred. But then I sort of got into the topic of cycling as a mode of transport and cycling as policy. I had a chance of working as an industrial psychologist in an NGO that was promoting cycling. And that sort of took me to different places and, and, and organizations and, and projects in Asia, then back to Latin America, then also in Africa, and then a little bit of all three. But then more recently, in 2018, uh, I was called by a colleague whose name is Robin Chase. She, she created Zipcar. And then uh, we were working on something and we were sort of trying to get people excited about how to to produce the future of mobility or understand a future of mobility that would not be like hell. Literally, that was the way that Robin was was presenting this. And and we were sort of started to think about this. And she got some funding. She created the idea of NUMO. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit differently about your work. Um, you work at the intersection of urban mobility and technology. Can you talk about what that intersection looks like and what new digital technologies are how they affect what we can do with mobility? We live in cities where the design of those cities has promoted us moving a lot. So a typical example is if you need a pencil or milk, depending on the city where you are, you can just walk for a block and buy it, either the pencil or milk or both. Or you need to get in a car and go to Costco, right? So, so that makes transport what, what is technically called a derived demand. So transportation is not something that is necessary, right? If you, if you do things right, if you plan cities correctly, you don't need to move, or at least you don't need to move a lot. Now, how can digitization help? Or how can we get digital technologies to help? 
the common assumption when you ask anybody or most people working in the transport sector, sadly, they'll say, well, of course, we just have electric vehicles. But that's not really a solution to the, to the larger questions of transport. And then there's more interesting things that you can do. You can all the way back to improve the way that cities are designed would be one way where technologies can help you. You can design cities much more effectively with, with some software because you can use it to sort of analyze better uh, the geography of the city, sort of look at trends, like all that. So the analysis of, of the geographic analysis is a, is a big way of how you can make better cities. And, and I would start from there. That is how broad we should think about the improvement of transportation. Then we can think about other ways in which technology can improve transportation. You can avoid travel by using technology, using Zoom. You can also use it by uh, technology by uh, reducing the need for trips, but you can also use technology to improve that shift side. So for example, you can shift to walking, cycling, or public transport. And when you use technology to do that, it's much more interesting. Uh, you can do bike share, you can do scooter share, you can give people much better information about what are the services that are nearby, when are the services coming, if your bus stop is 300 meters away and you know exactly where the next bus is, when should you leave your office so that you can get the bus? With the incredible amount of data that we have. So, so we're just at the beginning of that. And, and I think that is sort of the more exciting stuff that you can do in, in digital, the use of digital technologies for transportation. I like how you're talking about, like there's these couple of buckets. One is sort of reducing the uncertainty around certain modes of transportation. When's the bus coming? When's the train? How much time do I have? And, and those things can help encourage people to use those services more. And then with that data, you can optimize those services so that more people will use them. Yeah, exactly. So in the end, some people say that you, you get sort of transportation systems are those where it's cheap to move. And that's not really the case. Like what people want is convenience. And you can give convenience by improving, for example, in transit, you can give greater convenience by improving the frequencies and, and letting people sit in the bus, not be standing at four people per square meter. But you can do a lot with good information to people in what bus is coming and good information to operators to see how they can make better use of the data so that they can operate more effectively and more efficiently in arriving at the different places. So we, we've heard a lot about Copenhagen or Amsterdam, the, the bike culture there. But there's also been this transformation in Bogota and it's not really that well known. So for people who aren't familiar, can you tell us how mobility has changed in Bogota over the last decade? I would go a little bit farther back. I okay. would say end of the 90s. Mm -hmm. So in the early 90s, it was really hell. We had a lot of problems in Colombia, right? Violence, really huge violence. But, but we also have incredibly bad transport in general, but like our buses were horrifyingly dirty. They had horrible service. We didn't have any form of business model for an actual formal service. So it was really bad. But then we, we've had a few very good mayors since 1995. So one was Mokus. He, he sort of explained to everybody that we were people who could be kind to each other. We could respect the law. We could sort of uh, stop at a crossing if we were driving. So he sort of laid the basis for this cultural transformation of citizens and 
he gained the trust of people in into the government and what the government was doing. So, so we, I, also, I always start by that. Then you have Peñalosa, who is sort of a well-known character in urban policy. He was mayor twice. His first term is sort of the most well-known in 1998 to 2000. So he basically said, I'm going to build as much sidewalks, bikeways, and transit infrastructure and services as I can. And I'm going to start now. So in three years, he literally rebuilt the city in terms of public space, including transport services and infrastructure. That created well, a bus-based system that's called a Transmilenio. The technical term for it is bus rapid transit, which has a segregated right-of-way. He also built more than 200, so 140 miles or more of bikeways and thousands of square feet of, of uh, sidewalks. Like you literally, you have pictures of before and after of entire avenues that did not have a sidewalk and he built them. So that was an incredible transformation which Peñalosa must be given credit for. But then later we had uh, other mayors who continued in this trend. So we've had a very good 20 years of actual transformation of the city in improving conditions for people walking, cycling, and riding transit. At this point, we are close to 10% of our trips by bicycle. That is huge. That is much higher than most large, like every large city in Latin America, higher than most medium-sized cities and some uh, small cities. Like 10% of mode share is incredibly high. And then Transmilenio is great. Like the, the BRT has been replicated in many different places. It has been sort of taken as the standard example of success. Uh, and then the pandemic came. And then Bogota was the first city in the world to actually devote more than 80 miles, maybe 70, 80 miles of roads to bicycles. So we now have a lot of people using a bicycle. Like it's it's not Amsterdam, which has 30% of trips, but we're really something that you go out in peak hour and you have traffic jams on bikes, which of course is a funny thing to say, but like you have seven people on a bicycle in a crossing, which you have to liberate the crossing, but like that's a lot of people because cycling is so effective. So it sounds like it was a was a top-down effort led by policymakers, or was there was there a no, I think it's fair. movement too? It's fair to say that it was it was a top-down thing. So okay, that's a nuanced response. These policies have been mostly promoted by government almost imposed by government i have i have a question yeah, yeah. for you so we've yeah. talked a lot about walking and bikes and buses and things like this but um are you seeing e-bikes or e-scooters uh coming into the uh urban mobility space in bogota or other regions in in latin america like the electric versions so of these, if, these vehicles yeah yes so, so i said bicycles are closer to the perfect vehicle E-bikes are closest, closest. Like they're they're much closer to the perfect vehicle because you have these beautiful characteristics. Like I don't know if you've if you've ridden a, an electric assist bike, not a not an electric throttle bike, but an electric assist. It's like this gentle thing where you feel that your grandfather is helping you a little bit ride on the bike. Like it's so nurturing. And people who ride, so I wrote a blog post about this. It's called, I don't remember, I think The Banality of Joy in Transportation, which is a horrible title. But anyway, I, I'm sort of looking at how people are so joyful and they're glad to report joyfulness when they're riding an electric 
two-wheeler, like bicycle, an e-bike, or an e-scooter. They always, like, every time you ask them, they're like, this is wonderful. Like, I never expected that it would be so great. Like, I love this thing. You've never heard this of anybody in transit or in a car, right? And in a bicycle, you can, but it's sort of a more, it's, it's a more spiritual one week after thing, yeah, which has a lot of physiological reasons. But what about, I have another question though. So when it comes to this micromobility and all these electric versions, so are you seeing sort of adoption to be sort of standard in Bogota or, or are there certain no. inequities that are No, so, okay, emerging? so when you look at it in the US, there's a lot of uptake because basically you're stranded. Like you have nothing else to do. Like you, you, like this is so perfect because there's nothing really of, of good quality in, in any of your transport services. So an e-bike is like great. And you have enough money to purchase one. Like in general, people can purchase one. It's not so far away in their minds to purchase an e-bike. In Bogota, it's not the case. I actually advised a friend to to get an e-bike, do an e-bike shop. And he, he went broke. So I apologized uh, many times. But, but basically the thing is that people are scared that they're, that the e-bike will get stolen. And it's also pretty expensive for people in Bogota to buy an e-bike. And and I guess used to regular bicycles. But in any event, the e-bike is the closest thing that will get us out of this rut, like where we are, like in this problem of transportation. The e-bike could be one of those solutions. Like how to deploy it is a huge question. This is recent research from, I think, Portland State. And they, they did sort of a review of every e-bike incentive program in the U.S. And I was surprised to see, like, there's a thousand incentive programs for that. In Colombia, in, in Latin America, you don't have that because there's no money for that or either because of corruption or because of spending it wrong or because we're not visionaries or something. But but in the end, we don't have so much money to give to people so that they can buy an e-bike. So I think that making available that vehicle is, is, is going to be one of the toughest things. But I do feel that e-bikes are going to be a crucial part of the future, which can help us in really solving the problems. Like electric cars are not going to solve problems. I'm curious to know sort of what lessons do you think us as Earthlings globally can take from the developments of mobility that you've seen in Bogota and other other cities? What are your top lessons? The best solutions are not fancy they're not super complicated. Know that walking should be the predominant mode of transport for many trips. And, and you should develop a city and a transport system that is for walking. If not, then try cycling. If not, then try public transport. And really know that if there is no car in a street, and if you're designing a street, for example, and there's no car lane, it's not the end of the world. It is actually better. And if we start by thinking of those things and how you don't need the super fancy flying taxi thing, you do need to understand walking, cycling, public transport as the main modes. And how do you develop a city that can be effectively used? This is fascinating because I think one of the things that we've, we've talked about is the use of high technology to enable these very simple things. Like we were discussing the use of all of this information technology and data to better design cities for hmm. mobility, right. yet for the lowest tech forms of mobility, for the, for the simplest forms of mobility. Is this maybe the dematerialization of transportation? 
where the technology goes into the planning abstract. instead of the the technology goes into the abstraction instead of the yeah. actual movement i would have never expected somebody to talk about that in this post but i love that you came up with this very meta that. But it will not be the solution per se. I appreciate hearing from Carlos how technology has been this tool as well as an enabler. And then also at the same time, he's talking about how there's also this need for systems and design as well to create a functional micromobility ecosystem. Like I was just in Amsterdam and the bike culture is amazing. And these bikes are going very, very fast down the bike lane. And I'm the stupid American that keeps stepping in the way. And I, I realized pretty quickly the reason that people can go so fast in these bike lanes is because they're very confident that there aren't going to be items in their way. Random trash can, a car parked there, whatever the case might be. Yeah, I think that Amsterdam did a really good job of designing the whole city and also socializing it like this is how you're going to do things. And I think that this gets back to the essentials. You know, cities should be designed for people to meet their needs directly. And I, one of the other things I really like that Carlos brought up is that the most effective solutions make it so that you don't have to travel that far in the first place. You know, totally underappreciated tool for fighting climate change, the corner store. <laughs> Well, it like, makes me wonder, like, how much new tech do you need to then nudge policy in a direction to then enable further adoption? Or will policy and urban planning always be so slow on the uptake that, you know, technology is always going to be further along and you'll always be playing catch up? Yeah, I don't know. We haven't caught up with that 19th century technology, the bicycle yet. So I don't even know if, you know, look, the current infrastructure is still way behind in many places. I... I was formerly a bike commuter, but my office was just a few miles away, and I'm pretty rugged about wanting getting out in all weather. Many Americans travel a lot farther than I do to get to work, and if I had to travel farther, even if it was just, you know, 15 miles, would I have been able to bike? Yeah, and then, you know, what's the, the opportunity costs very quickly mm -hmm. um, outweigh any of the other reasons why you might want to ride your bike to work. You don't want to get on the bus and put your bike on the bus and then get to the city and then get on the bike and then, you know, have to, you know, not be sweaty and gross by the time you get there or deal with it in the company bathroom, yeah. hoping that your boss doesn't come in while you're doing whatever it is you're doing because there's no locker rooms. Yeah, which, you know, has been solved in some places and some places it hasn't. And I think that increasing the range and decreasing the sweatiness of commutes is major benefits for e-bikes. That's, you know, they're really important tools. But they also have downsides. You know, they can catch fire on their own, you know, which your regular bike can't unless you're riding on Venus. Right. I think the t industry term they use is, um, you know, self-ignition, right? Very, like, white bread. Like I'm catching on fire? fire. <laughs> <laughs> like you, they make you spontaneously combust. 
<laughs> Not you, Christian. The battery. Oh, okay. The battery. Right, right. Unless you're riding it. The battery. Hopefully you've hopped off by then. But I read that um, like an average of three or four e-bikes or scooters uh, have battery fires in New York City every week. And then year over year, several people die every year just from these fires. So, you know, we're talking about thermal runaway, which is, you know, kind of comes from these batteries, either not the chemistry that's being used in the batteries or them not being constructed properly or both or misused or overused. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think these are happening as often with well-maintained, you know, with high-end, well-maintained e-bikes that are not being charged inappropriately. But, you know, when they do happen, they really catch people's attention, especially when they're really bad, like the one in the Bronx apartment buildings that happened a few years ago. But we also need to put this in perspective because I think we had six e-bike fires so far when we're recording this in November 2022 in New York City. Deaths, deaths by the fires. Sorry, sorry, six deaths by fires, four last year total. But in 2021, 124 pedestrians, 19 cyclists, and 15 people on mopeds and e-bikes were killed in New York City. By cars. By cars. Yeah, so you're still far more likely to be killed on your e-bike by a car than you are by your battery catching fire and burning down your apartment. Now, that doesn't mean this isn't a problem. It is a problem and it should be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't believe that New York City is the only one having these issues. I mean, yeah, they've... Um, they've adopted micromobility more uh, fundamentally than maybe other cities. And I can see how the news, you know, chases down these fires because they're very novel and eye-catching. But I, I got to imagine other cities are having these issues. Yeah, I'm not sure that they're reporting them because New York City is so much bigger than other municipalities in the United States. And it also has so many more e-bikes. I think that, you know, the other cities, this is just, it's too small, but we might start seeing these numbers in the future. Like once it gets to a point where it's worth their time to recategorize these fires as actually battery fires or bike fires. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think another note here is that many fire departments are not ready for lithium-ion batteries, period. Because lithium-ion batteries, when they catch fire, they can't be put out like a normal fire. If you put water on a lithium-ion battery fire, it explodes. Yeah, yeah, which is why I feel like, I mean, I've heard that you, well, maybe if I watch some of these big auto, automobile lithium battery fires just have to be burnt out. Like, you just have to let them burn out on their own. Yeah, I th- there's also chemical suppressants that can be used, but it definitely can needs special training. Like, your fire department has to be trained to deal with lithium-ion battery fires. Otherwise, if they yeah. go in there with their hose... It can be bad. Very bad. And the thing is, we don't even have to have this problem in the battery space. We don't have to have this problem with battery fires. There's chemistries out there, not just one, multiple, that don't self-ignite. Yeah. And so for this show, we talked with a battery manufacturer who's working with an underappreciated chemistry, one that has the promise to eliminate the risk of e-bike fires entirely and could also speed up charging operations in a way that could advance how shared e-mobility companies operate. My name is Charlie Welch, the co-founder and CEO at Zapbat. Okay, and so what is Zapbat and why did you found it? Zapbat is a company where we are bringing to market lithium titanate, which is a unique lithium-ion chemistry uh, developed about two decades ago. And what we offer is electronics and software that kind of enhance lithium titanate's capabilities and allow it to be a one-for-one swap of kind of any lithium-ion chemistry, but 
What differentiates it is that we can charge our batteries extremely fast in about 10 to 15 minutes. We get, even at that rate, we get a huge cycle life of around 15,000 cycles. And the core of it is lithium titanate is considered the safest lithium chemistry on the planet with a near 0% chance of thermal runaway due to some of its unique properties. So, so we have a partnership set up with Toshiba, who builds the core chemistry and the cells, and we are offering to market a faster, safer, and longer-lasting battery for a whole variety of industries. Those are definitely some advantages. <laughs> yeah, especially no thermal runaway. Yeah. For, pe- for people who don't know what that is, could you explain that to us? Yep, so thermal runaway basically means that a lithium battery can create its own self-sustaining fire. So it has the three ingredients needed of heat, fuel, and oxygen that makes fire burn. So when they say thermal runaway, what it means is that in events of a short circuit or things that cause the battery to catch fire, it is impossible to prevent it from continuing to be on fire and then continue to burn throughout the rest of the pack because kind of it's like its own self-sustaining fuel. Right. So that covers the safety aspect in that your batteries are very unlikely to have thermal runaway. But let's talk about this fast charging aspect. How big of a deal is this for micromobility and why? In our opinion, it's a huge deal. So it's interesting because a lot of people talk about fast charging, but it's one of those topics where it has to be done without sacrificing the other aspects of the battery. So Certain companies claim you can fast charge a battery, but you're now degrading the battery to maybe even 100 cycles or so. And so for micromobility, it allows companies to basically have a battery that can charge in 10 to 15 minutes while having now an increased lifespan so they don't have to you know, send batteries to landfills or recyclers every 6 to 12 months. So it's one of those where it truly is they get to have their cake and eat it too where they get both the lifetime they want, but now they can charge the thing in, in 15 minutes. And how does that change how these uh, bike sharing or e-scooter sharing companies might operate if they can charge it so much faster. Yeah, so so far as we've seen, it allows like a creative approach to their operational model. So historically, an e-bike or scooter battery will take around five to seven hours to charge. And because of that, a lot of these companies have to have vans, they have to pay people to take and shuffle around and rebalance scooters or e-bikes or other things around a city. They have to take them to a warehouse, which means they're not on the street for five to seven hours. Or it means that they have to have a safety stock of up to 50% of extra batteries so that they're constantly swapping which ones are charged and not charged. And the core of that is that's all very expensive. You know, if you think about a 10 to 15 minute charge time, it gives you the ability to charge on the street, to travel around and top off all the systems so they can achieve like a 99% uptime. And really, it's like, turning one of their biggest challenges into now one of the biggest strengths so they can focus on the more profitable aspects of incentivizing riders and having vehicles that are meant to last and not be super labor intensive. So let's step back here and go a little bit bigger picture. I mean, we're talking about all of these technical advantages of lithium titanate. And, you know, it's making me realize that we've had batteries for a long time, but we didn't have micromobility. At least it wasn't something that it was as as widespread or burgeoning as it is today. Do you think that the rise in micromobility has has a relationship with the development of lithium-ion battery technology? And if so, how did that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you look at the industries that were defining battery technology, it was really portable electronics was kind of driving like the requirements of what batteries needed to do. And then early adoption of kind of electric vehicles. 
And so at the time, their strong focus was like, we need a cell phone or a portable laptop to last long enough that people are going to want to purchase these. And so they started to build in more of those specs into the battery. And then now a lot of companies are being able to adopt that same technology to make an electric bike or, you know, other other things that were at one point very difficult, very expensive, now super kind of easy and commoditized. So it's interesting because now they've adopted a lot of these core technologies, but it's almost like they got trapped with what they were given because almost 90 something percent of all the major e-bike or scooter companies are using the same core technology. And so now it's kind of an interesting time to look at if you were going to optimize a technology for micromobility is the core lithium ion they use of an NMC or other chemistry really what they would have wanted. And I think we're kind of seeing the answer of not particularly like it allowed the enabling of the industry, but there's a lot of nuances into why a different battery chemistry would really benefit those technologies and those companies. Mm-hmm. And when you say NMC, that is a nickel cobalt? Yeah. Uh, so the two super popular chemistries are NMC, which is nickel manganese cobalt. Manganese, yes. Or the other one's LCO, which is lithium cobalt oxide, or some adoption of lithium iron phosphate or LFP. So those are kind of the, the three big ones that dominate the space. Wow. Well, yeah. So let's, I have a question for you around uh, lithium titanate. How did you how did you come to discover this chemistry? Because as I understand it, it was sort of like the redheaded stepchild of lithium batteries and nobody sort of, you know, paid much attention to it or or they sort of shunned it. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So when I was in um, applied research at Northrop Grumman Aerospace, I got to work with a whole variety of chemistries, you know, far outside the consumer space because the military sees super exotic problems. And they've put batteries in some of the harshest conditions like on and off our planet. And so I got to work with lithium titanate um, on a project we were working on with the Navy. And it did seem like that. It was like, it was this unknown kind of like weird chemistry that had a weird voltage profile, but was like near indestructible and could move energy super fast. And so that kind of sparked the curiosity of like, why is no one using this? Like this is a tried and true proven thing. And because its voltage profile was so far outside of the typical lithium-ion chemistry, came to learn that it was like the supporting electronics and software for a battery can sometimes become a huge challenge into adopting into a system. It's like, I like to give the analogy of even if a miracle battery exists, like it doesn't matter if you have terrible plumbing. You know, it's like mm-hmm. if you could have the perfect thing, you have the best well in the world, but if you can't get the water to the right place in the right way, it doesn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I guess, so stepping back and looking at the larger system here then of micromobility devices and particularly e-bikes, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing micromobility today and micromobility companies? Right now, operations and their long-term sustainability, absolutely. I mean, the claims of sustainability, I think, are great goals. But the fact of the matter is that batteries are not carbon neutral yet. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of CO2 to produce a battery. And the only way you offset that is by the battery lasting long enough. And even if the battery is produced sustainably, the supply chain around it is also very unsustainable. Like if I could pick something I would not want to ship, it'd be like giant hunks of metal that are arguably flammable, you know. And the supply chain around is very carbon intensive. And so I think it relates in two ways. Like one, their challenge is they have to have a battery where their operations can just become seamless. 
like Swiss train conductor, you know, this, this vehicle is like a total indestructible asset for the company and the battery supporting that. And then two, set up an actual process so it's not this fast fashion era of batteries and getting used to, you know, trashing them every year. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're not buying batteries constantly every year and re- and switching out all these batteries all the time because they have such a short life. Right, right, precisely. All right, so. wow. This is interesting because it seems like the micromobility itself is scaling rapidly and the cities are really starting to see the benefits of incorporating these smaller transportation options into their, um, you know, in, onto their streets. And of course, people are, are seeing those benefits and there's all these second and third order effects that are happening because of the mobility that's provided from these, these vehicles. Yet the, uh, the thermal runaway, like you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, is a really big problem for cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering... Sort of, do cities, are they making the connection between the battery chemistry and um, and these fires or are there other things that are causing these e-bikes to catch on fire beyond the uh, the battery that's prone to thermal runaway? Yeah, for, so for the cities, I don't think they've asked questions around the battery chemistry yet. And I think it's mostly because there hasn't been an alternative. It's kind of like a single source option right now for, for e-bike companies. And then... You know, for going forward, it's 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 tough because in the way that current e-bike batteries are wired, even if the battery is done properly, the way lithium-ion batteries work, and it's somewhat technical, but how you string them together in series and parallel, you essentially have batteries in a battery pack right now that are in a dangerous state, but it's impossible to check because how multiple batteries in a pack kind of like share the power is some of the batteries will compensate for the one that's dying, quote unquote. So you won't actually be aware if a battery's in a healthy or unhealthy state often of the times. And so that's where we're seeing some of these like spontaneous fires uh, start to pop up is one of the batteries in the one single cell in the e-bike battery is bad, but it's almost impossible to detect. And if that one cell goes, the whole battery goes. And so it's kind of a paradoxical problem where you really do need a safer technology because it is impossible to get those batteries to a 99.9% margin to not have thermal runaway. This brings up another question. So we've had laptops and cell phones for decades, and those are powered by lithium-ion batteries. But there hasn't been a huge concern about fires. What's different with e-bikes? Why are we having these problems now? So the short answer is like super different environments. You know, so like laptops and cell phones we treat the batteries really nicely, quote unquote, like very consistent cycles. Don't charge it super fast. Don't discharge it super fast. And they get to be like in a constantly somewhat consistent like temperature and and all that stuff. So for a battery, it's like they're kind of in a great spot. Uh, E-bikes, on the other hand, right? Christian, have you gotten the chance or Lisanne to ride any different e-bikes yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I I, I ended up investing in one. I I called it uh, field research. Yes, that's that's exactly what I called it. Perfect. Um, Well, I'm not. I'm not sure if you had the same experience I do, but like the second I get on one, it's like full power or nothing. You're just riding it like you stole it because it's fun. And so you went from a super uh, calm environment for a battery, like a personal electronic, to now it's like hot, cold, full power. You know, off power, charge it leave in your garage, 
um, it's not the funnest place the battery wants to be. So then what do you think cities can do? Because if the battery is sort of that single point of failure and the chemistry is is contributing to that, how should cities be addressing this concern? You know, obviously, I, well, I have one very biased view, which is uh, replace every battery with a Zap battery, <laughs> which I personally think would be great, obviously, for a variety of reasons. But in, in actuality, what I think they need to do is like, one, take a clear look and requirement about where companies are sourcing from. Because a lot of companies do a phenomenal job at producing um, like the standard, you know, 18650 batteries. I don't want to knock them at all. But mm-hmm. oftentimes companies that try and cut corners there or maybe go with an unreliable supplier, like that can be a big risk. And so I think cities should take a closer look at saying, you know, we're putting potentially hundreds of thousands of flammable like <laughs> thermal runaway vehicles around the city right now. We should, to a high degree of confidence, know what that's going to look like. Yeah, so maybe some regulation of e-bikes. You know, it sounds like there's a, a place here where some of these battery products shouldn't be on the market and shouldn't be being sold. Is this? A, do you think safety regulation would fix this? I think so. I mean, it's not uncommon, right? When, think about when you know water bottles and other aspects came out and learned that you know certain additives or coatings and stuff were you know not to anyone's benefit. Um, I think this is one of those few times where adding regulation would help and I think provide incentive to like make a safer technology. Because I think adoption of micromobility is going to benefit a lot of people. Um, and so I think having a solution that's going to make a more ubiquitous adoption in cities can only can only benefit, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have ever lived in a high traffic city, but, you know, I remember that anything I could try and do to alleviate traffic after living in LA of riding an e-bike was awesome. Like I could get from Hermosa Beach to Venice on my e-bike as fast as I could get there in a car, which is crazy. Yeah, well, in LA, you're lucky to be doing 20 or 25 miles an hour <laughs> in a car. I mean, yeah. that's a city where I have literally been stopped in traffic after midnight. You wow. know, it's like two in the morning and I'm sitting on the freeway and I'm mm-hmm. we're just stopped, not going anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> anyone there told you the inside joke of the 405, but they named it that because you can either go four or five miles an hour. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the big picture for micromobility. Where do you, what big trends do you see? What changes do you see coming over the next decade? I think a big one is cities adopting like dedicated micromobility paths. So have you guys ever been to Europe, like uh, Denmark or Amsterdam before? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's incredible. It, you know, you have this like almost commuter micromobility culture already and it's awesome uh, and i strongly see that i think certain cities are trying to think about if they were going to have dedicated micromobility paths like what would that look like and so i hope that stays a big trend for cities like you know across the country in north america and the other one is i think the growth of people trying to replace one car with probably a micromobility vehicle that's one that we've seen of you know, if family only needs one or two cars, you know, that they, they can replace a lot of the short trips around the grocery store or telling their teenager to go get something with an e-bike. What do you see for technology and micromobility over the next decade? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, lithium titanate for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in all honesty, I think it's ripe for battery innovation and a new battery to come in and kind of help redefine the industry. Besides that, you know, I think there's been a big boost in IoT, you know, like, e-bikes and stuff being, you know, having a lot higher 
effectiveness, especially in mobility as a service. So how people are, you know, riding things around a city. But those are two ones I definitely see growing a lot over the next decade. All right, Christian, I see the theme that's showing up here. Technology being an enabler of social change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's funny because I feel like we usually think of technology and social change as being these two distinct things that we put in separate buckets, but really they're just constantly intersecting and mm -hmm. constantly overlapping. Yeah, and I think that's what make tech, makes technology so fascinating for people because you never know what breakthrough tech is going to reshape society in, in a way no one could have imagined. Yeah, and you know what I love is when technology allows us to meet needs in a way that is more efficient and requires fewer physical inputs. You know, instead of being bigger and heavier technologies, lighter, smaller technologies, mm -hmm. which is why micromobility is so cool. Yeah, efficiency going up, cost going down. I mean, that's what, if you look back, it's like we went from horses to cars and now to micromobility. And now Charlie has his lithium ion battery on steroids, which is powering micromobility in even a more efficient mm -hmm. way. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, New York City saw all three of those. New York City had the era where the removal of horse excrement was a major problem for the city because that's how people got around, right? And people are going to look back now and they're going to say, wait a minute, you were driving these giant, you know, metal boxes with tanks full of liquid flammable fuel that spewed pollutants through areas where people lived? Really? Was that a good idea? Of thousands of dollars to own this thing that you basically parked for 90% of the time? Yeah. And so, you know, I think we get into this question now, you know, what needs to be done to move this forward? Is this something that's just a market-based thing or do we need additional regulation? I, you know where I fall on this, you know, and I, I will note that if we just look at the market alone, it's leading to things like batteries yeah. that catch fire. And I wonder, okay, you know where I land on this, right? So I wonder if it's just too early to tell because companies like ZapBat are still emerging as players in the market to nudge companies to adopt a more responsible solution for their e-bikes and e-scooters. I mean, if I was the owner of an e-bike like share sharing company and I wanted to reduce my own liabilities related to fire, you know, and maybe like get lower insurance rates, then I would like see LT the lithium titanate as an attractive solution. Or like if I'm Citibank and my logo's all over the e-bikes in a city, I kind of don't want them catching on fire. That is a really good point. But I also think we're in a race against time to deploy solutions for the reasons we got to, into at the beginning of this episode. So if we want these better solutions to scale faster, I don't think we can afford some of the hiccups like four battery fires a week. No. Absolutely not, right? I'd like to see cities really incentivize the adoption of safer solutions and, and really nudge people to scale up safer battery technology. Yeah, I thought it'd be important also for all the existing e-bikes on the street, right? We don't want to have to just yank those. But yeah. maybe we can also support the more rapid scale-up of battery tech so that we get solutions like LTO or whatever other safe battery solutions we need cheaper, faster. LFP, that's that's one of the other ones yeah. that, are, that, are, that don't spontaneously ignite, if you will. But, you know, I mean, that some cities don't even have bike lanes right now. So I feel like yeah. there's like yeah. this long way to go um, and we can see this future forming. And for those of us who kind of understand the climate crisis, we want this future to move faster. We need it to move faster. Yeah. 
definitely. And the thing is, it's happening now, and policy is in a race to catch up. And I think this is just happening in the messy way that it always does. You know, but I'm just hoping that we get ahead of this one and embrace it so that we can have fewer road deaths, fewer battery fires, and move more seamlessly to a future of chill urban transit. I like it, Christian. Thank you for getting all philosophical on us. Those are my favorite parts of our time together on this show. And with that, Earthlings, we're going to see you again on the next turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower. Remember, the future is actually yours to choose. Thank you.